Welcome to Pilgrimage Stories from Up and Down the Staircase. I'm Matthew Anderson. During this time of limited travel, a lot of us are sticking close to home and missing the long-distance trails we love. Maybe your hiking boots, like mine, are looking pretty forlorn these days. If you, like me, love to walk, there are lots of virtual pilgrimages you can do right where you are. As for me, I've been walking up and down my staircase. While I do, I think about the folks I've met and the paths I've walked. I'd like to share some of those with you. In this episode of Pilgrimage Stories, we're on the Whithorn Way, a newly revived version of a medieval route through southwest Scotland. If you loved walking and you've been to Scotland, you've probably walked trails in the Highlands. If you're a pilgrim, and I mentioned Scotland, there's a good chance you've been or want to go to Iona, the home of St. Columba. Iona calls itself the cradle of Scottish Christianity. But that's a disputed title. The little island boasts a rebuilt abbey and a lively and creative monastic community. Iona welcomes hundreds of thousands of pilgrims and tourists annually. The place you may not know about, and that I'd like to introduce you to today, is the destination that we walked toward, Whithorn, the home of the other saint, the semi-legendary Saint Ninian. The Whithorn Way is a modern-day trek sitting atop a medieval pilgrimage path. Even though there's been some form of contemporary Whithorn Way since at least the 1990s, it still hasn't completely solidified as a route. The modern version of the Whithorn Way was set up by a conglomeration of tourist, government, and religious groups to take pilgrims and trekkers the 143 miles, or 233 kilometers, from Glasgow all the way to the southwestern tip of Scotland. There, on the Macarus Peninsula, lie the remains of the so-called Candida Casa, or White House, of St. Ninian, who was a, an obscure 4th or 5th century bishop. I went in 2019 with a small group of other Canadians. We had only six days for walking, so we opted to skip the initial more urban sections of the trail near Glasgow. We took the train from Glasgow's stately Victorian Central Station straight to Ayr, from there, we walked through Alloway Village with a stop at Robbie Burns's farmstead and then followed the pilgrimage path through to the coast. What can you say about a pilgrimage to a saint so lost in the mists of time that there's debate as to whether he even existed? Depending on who you talk to, St. Ninian lived either in the 5th century or in the 6th, or not at all. He came to Whithorn in the Macris Peninsula in present-day southwest Scotland, either from Ireland, around the same time as Columba, or more than a century earlier from near Hadrian's Wall across the Solway Firth. He was either a late Roman bishop or an early Irish ascetic. He was either a figure of the established church, perhaps even there to stamp out heresy, or an example of the highly romanticized Celtic Christianity that saw God's presence in every thistle and green leaf. Ninian either established a monastery 
or he didn't. And the Candida Casa, or White House, of Ninian was in fact much later. So much about Ninian and the Whithorn Way is a mystery. But the country is happy to reveal at least some of its secrets when you walk the storied paths. Tell me what, firstly oh. what Taddies and Neeps are and then the search for the perfect Taddies and Neeps. Taddies and Neeps come with haggis and mashed potatoes and mashed turnips. If I see them on a menu, I'll always order that. And on the last day, we got the perfect, the deconstructed Hatties, Neeps, and Tagus. My name is Ken Wilson. I'm a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Media, Art, and Performance at the University of Regina. And I have an interest in pilgrimage. I'm Christine Ramsey, and I teach uh, film and media studies in the Department of Film at the University of Regina, uh, Faculty of Media, Art, and Performance. and um, I just love to walk. I seem to re I seem to remember you uh, kind of having a sandwich in Glen Luce in the middle of a rain. Well, it was raining all the time, but a, a, one of the rain rainstorms, and you ordered something a haggis sandwich, I think, or something. Cheese and, and haggis. Cheese yeah. and haggis. And I remember you you said, "Well, I'm glad I did that up, but I won't be doing that again." <laughs> <laughs> well, otherwise, you don't know. You walk away and you say, well, I could have had cheese and haggis. I wonder what that's like. That summer, I had received a grant from the Concordia University Part-Time Faculty Association to, to research the right of responsible access, or what in England is called the right to roam. I like the Scottish title better. Part of the reason I'm interested in learning more about the right of responsible access is that I believe it might help us, uh, those of us who are Canadians, understand better how to be treaty people and to respect the sovereignty of Indigenous peoples better. As a European background Canadian, looking to our own cultural roots and concepts such as the commons might be helpful, as well as learning how Europeans are enacting access laws now in the 21st century. I knew that Scotland is one of the best places to start. Scots and Canadians are similar societies with similar cultural outlooks. The Scottish law allowing access, or rather encouraging it responsibly, is relatively new. There's a lot we Canadians could learn about how it's being implemented. Also, I researched pilgrimage. The track to St. Ninian is so ancient, and Ninian himself so enigmatic, that these factors, more than anything else, brought me to Glasgow. I did not arrive in the country for sentimental reasons. Yet, if you're not careful, Scotland grows on you like deep moss on a stone fence. The high point for me... We walked near the end, uh, I think it was the last day, uh, at the precipice of the edge of the hill, the sea cliff of the ocean. And um, remember the weather, it was really quite forceful and it was really blowing and we had, um, well, or at least I had on my long, long raincoat that was really catching the wind. And we went across with fear. Like there were points at which we're like, what is going on here? What are we doing? And then when we got to the end, there's a little gate, and then we recognized, oh, we were on some kind of olden, you know, path from 1782. And the actual path was about 10 feet up, and we really couldn't see it because we were on the cliff face. I seem to I remember. It's my favorite day. I seem to remember being crouched over myself and going, oh boy, and I was so happy that the wind was blowing in from the sea rather than out because I thought we could be thrown off this cliff quite quickly. Mm -hmm. 
And then there was, there was some Scott, uh, one of the Scots came walking toward us with a dog. I don't know if you remember that. And the yeah. dog was fastened to the front of her, maybe to her belt or something. And she yes. was saying, naughty, naughty, naughty dog, she said in, that, in, a, in an accent that I could never reproduce. And she said, naughty, naughty, naughty thing. She said, last time we went over this, um, the Coast Guard had to come fetch him. And I thought, and now you're tying him to you? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I remember that very well. Now I want to hear from Ken about his uh, high point and low point at this moment in time from the Whithorn way. I would say my low point was the day that we got lost and ended up in the nettles and so forth, but not then. It was at the end of the day when we walked into Girvan and the sun was going down and it was cold. And I remember, um, I remember we found a pub and we were all very wet and we, I think you went out to get us some fish and chips. We sat in the pub. That was great. The low point came afterwards when we walked just around the corner to the B&B. I was suddenly so chilled and so cold mm -hmm. and the nettles were, my, my um, hand, my arms and legs were singing from the nettles and uh, which, and I did that to, to myself. I knew they were there and I just, I was certain that we were going to be able to get through and out and down onto the, at least the side of the highway that we could hear just, but no, no, there was a stone wall with barbed wire on top and the brambles were right there and there was no way you could climb over and getting lost wasn't good, but um, at the end of the day, being so cold and wet, that was the worst point. The high point, and my memory has merged two incidents together and I don't remember if they were on the same day or not, uh, one was walking down a road and the sun was out and there were flowers everywhere, sort of like, uh, the, it wasn't quite a hedgerow, but it was close. And there were flowers everywhere at the side of the road. I remember being, just loving the wildness and the moor and the forest. So I have your permission to... You have my permission, yes. Thank you very kindly. Um, you had said that there's, a, um, there's always a, a slightly different viewpoint between those who see a pilgrimage path as um, an ongoing place for pilgrimage mm -hmm. and those who are more interested in the archaeology and historical. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, yeah, sorry, I am not... An, uh, I can tell you a little bit about it. I think it's basically that is always going to be ongoing and we'll have to resolve it if we're concerned and as I say as you know I'm I'm about community development I'm about having people here yeah you know yeah. and our people in this part of the area are, are will go away to London my my three are in all around the world yeah uh, so therefore we've got to find jobs for the people who cannot go around the world yeah and and that's my that's, that's your interest. That's my interest. So I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the middle, really. I like the history. I like the geology. You know, I don't see a problem. And I don't see a problem for me. Walking is always metaphysical, too strong a word. You know, uh, cerebral. Yeah. You know, yeah. 
Hmm? So therefore, uh, for me, no matter where you walk, there is something that you can think about on the walk. Yeah, yeah. Hmm? So yeah. therefore, it's a tool rather than, for me, yeah. rather than, than something principled. Because yeah. I'm not religious, you know, I'm not yeah. born to any religion. Yeah. But, but, but it's important in history, in the context of where we are and yeah. what we've done. Can you understand history differently when you walk? I think you can, because you can see it, can't you? And, and you can work it out. You know, why did... I've I posted lots of wee pictures of ripples of stone, you know, in funny places, you know, down at the bottom of sea cliffs and things. And, yeah. and you just wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> hmm? yeah. That voice you're hearing is Peter Ross. Peter, from Glen Luce, is a member of the Whithorn Way Steering Committee of the Dumfries and Galloway Outdoor Trust and probably of several other civic organisations. It was Peter I'd arranged to meet to talk to about the Scottish law titled The Right of Responsible Access. Peter turned out to be a bit of an angel for us. Not only did he help us fetch some food on a night when we turned out not to have any, but he patiently took us out along the trail for one day, explaining the contemporary laws of public access and ancient laws of Robert the Bruce almost in the same breath. As you can hear, Peter combines his love of trails with a keen interest in local economic development. Peter has walked more of the trails around the Mackers Peninsula than almost anyone these days, and it shows. There we are. Tell us what we're looking at. What are we looking at? We're standing looking at an old mill. This is called, uh, what is his name? Balmish Mill, I'll call it that. Balmish Mill. Bar uh, it was a wee mill, and a, a, you passed another lot up the road, which was the laid for it, the supply for it. Ah, okay. laid, yeah. Sounds good. Yes, the answer, absolutely, I would go back there. Uh, especially to walk, it's lovely country. It's so wild and um, even the Scots, they all say, oh yes, no one lives here anymore. Everyone's moved away. And that makes it harder for tourists. I mean, that's essentially what we were. We were sort of um, unusual tourists. Makes it hard because there aren't places to stay and necessarily places to eat and so forth. But um, I would definitely go back. There are a cluster of not always cooperative groups and individuals who promote the contemporary Whithorn Way. And as we Canadians found out, they don't always talk to each other. Some of those behind it promote the Whithorn Way for the sake of the trail, others to support the village of Whithorn itself and the Mackers Peninsula with its archaeological riches. Some are concerned with commercial development all along the route, and others are interested in access and in open-air walking and environmentalism. In some ways, given all these differing groups and aims, it's a wonder that the route was marked at all. Thankfully, it was, and it's ready to walk. But the path through a space can be as complicated as the path through a story. We Canadians had only five days for walking the Whithorn Way. Ironically, we were following what James I, in 1427, commanded that foreign pilgrims must do to obtain a safe passage to the shrine. The royal decree said... They are to come by sea or land and to return by the same route. They must bear themselves as pilgrims and remain in Scotland no more than 15 days. They are to wear openly one pilgrim's badge as they come and another to be received from the prior of Whithorn for their return journey. Our little trio didn't wear pilgrim badges. And as far as I know, no one wondered if we had the right to be in Whithorn. Of course, our concern was not so much the shrine as the trail. It would be tempting to say that our secular motivations 
are brand new for what was once a religious pilgrimage, but that's just not so. There have always been interests other than religious behind the Whithorn Way. In the 14th and 15th centuries, the Scottish kings, who made Ninian's cult the most popular pilgrimage in Scotland, did so in large part to spur nationalism. Julia Muir Watt, Peter Ross, John Henderson, and the many other people who promote the paths now in the 21st century are only following in their footsteps. Tell me about Ninian's cave. Ninian's cave is quite strange uh, because if uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, there was a rock fall, right? And so some of the cave has been, uh, is gone. And so now it's more of like just a narrow cleft in, into the rock. I think it was more substantial at an earlier point. And it is absolutely a pilgrimage site. Uh, it's a shrine for many people. It, some people might consider it one of those thin places where the, this world and the next worlds are, the veil between them is quite thin. You see all kinds of uh, people have scratched their names into the rock. People leave things behind. Um, people make little crosses and leave them behind. That was really interesting. And that and uh, Whithorn Priory, which is further inland, um, those are the sort of three connected, the three sites connected to St. Ninian that function as the sort of pilgrimage goal um, that people would have gone to. Uh, I was just looking actually at um, the Wikipedia article on Isle of Whithorn and Whithorn, um, the chapel at Isle of Whithorn was rebuilt in the 1890s. And so who knows what it was like before that. Now it's quite nice, just needs a roof and you can move in. Walking along the Valley Luchis, or the Valley of Light, between New Luce and Glen Luce, on a brilliant summer morning when the sun is poking through a canopy of oak and ash to turn the mossy stone fences emerald green is a delight. Listening to birds call and smelling the rich earth, it's easy to forget that there's a saint at the end of the Whithorn Way, or there once was in any case, or perhaps there might have been. Ninian is a bit like King Arthur or Robin Hood. There was almost certainly a historical figure behind the name, but the history is hidden and desperately hard to trace out now almost a millennium and a half later. The earliest reference to Ninian comes from the Venerable Bede, who included Ninian as an aside in his ecclesiastical history written in the year 731. Bede wrote, In the 565th year of our Lord's incarnation, when Justin the Less received the helm of the Roman Empire from Justinian, there came into Britain from Ireland a priest and abbot, distinguished by his monastic dress and way of life, by name Columba, to preach the word of God to the provinces of the northern Picts. For the southern Picts, who dwell on this side of the mountains, had long before, as the story goes, forsaken the error of idolatry and received the faith of truth, when the word was preached to them by Ninia, a most reverent bishop and holy man of the nation of the Britons. He had been regularly instructed at Rome in the faith and mystery of the truth. Ninian's Episcopal See, distinguished by the name and the church of St. Martin, where he himself, together with many other saints, now rests in the body, the English nation has just begun to govern. The place, which belongs to the province of the Bernicians, is called in the vernacular the Candida Casa, 
because Ninian there built a church of stone in a manner to which the Britons were not accustomed. I'll have to put in a translation. <laughs> you will. I'll try my best to speak correctly. <laughs> no, no, it's not correct. But, um, but you said that uh, the access legislation, in some senses, was. Was pilot based. You know, it was about walking up mountains uh, and allowing the access for mountains. And we said down here in the south, just Galway, because you know, we said in the consultation, this is intensive agriculture. Yeah. We've got effectively 100 primary schools, which means we've effectively got 100 communities, which are fairly spread. We've got a very low population, 17 point something to the hectare. Yeah. So therefore, we felt that there should be a, a path system built into the process so that at least there's a basis for negotiation. And that's what actually they did. They included the obligation, a statutory duty on the on the local authorities to produce a core path plan. So the core path plan is really a part, an, obliga an obligatory part, an obligatory of, a, part of, it. of the right of access. Of the right of access. Oh. Yeah. If you had friends uh, who wanted to walk in Southwest Scotland on a pilgrimage route. Um, tell me what advice you give them about walking the Whithorn Way, because there will be people listening to this who might want to walk the Whithorn Way. Tell, give me a bit of, give them a bit of advice, anybody who wants to take this walk. Uh, get ordnance survey maps and get the download for your phone because the OS maps on a windy rainy day may not be that useful. If you're interested in history, there's so much for your eyes in Whithorn and on the trail that you'll be lucky to keep up the pace. I had the Ordnance Survey app on my phone while crossing the moors, and at one point the map showed so many Neolithic grave mounds, standing stones, and kuros, or artificial islands dating from the Bronze Age, that it was tempting just to stop right there. The same with the museum at Whithorn. The Whithorn Way is crowded. The nasty Earls of Kennedy... Robbie Burns, James IV, Robert the Bruce, early medieval Norris and ancient Romans, and the reformer John Knox all rub shoulders on the contemporary trail. If you're interested in art, the Garden Rose B&B, where we stayed in Maybole, sits on a hill on the north side of the village. The house is a treasure preserved in Charles Rennie Mackintosh arts and crafts style throughout. If you're interested in literature or scandal, then take some extra time while walking past the farm, now a museum, where Robbie Burns spent whatever time he had left between writing his poetry, bettering his social reputation, and fathering children by seven or eight women in the area. If you're interested in good Ayrshire or Dumfries and Galloway hospitality, then look up Callum and his dog Loki in the Maybole Arms, or alternately, Dave and Debs at the Craylaw Arms. Dave will even come fetch you off the moors if you're just slightly lost, as we were one cold and drizzly afternoon. The beer at the Craylaw is mighty fine, and Dave's stir-fry hot and tasty. What advice do you have, Christine, for people who might want to walk the Whithorn Way? Well, I would say it depends on your, um, your experience with walking. Uh, if, uh, if you're the type who, you know, likes things organized, I would really suggest that you do as we did and uh, book ahead, like get a, a person who will uh, take care of organizing the, uh, the B&Bs and especially there because 
um, as you're saying, it's, it's a little sparsely populated, but it's not impossible. And, and that person knows the area, so they're going to, you know, be able to be a real help. Something's wrong there. Mohill Junction, turn right, turn left. We did need Sarah that one day to help us with the tides mm. when we were down on the beach and none of us had that experience, she did, and she was able to reassure us that the tide was in fact not going to come in and we weren't going to drown. I've written a book about our experience on this walk titled House at the Edge of the Earth, Walking the Whithorn Way. That book is currently in search of a publisher, but you don't need to wait. Go walk the route that Scottish kings once trod. In the end, the Whithorn Way still feels a bit like a pilgrimage route under construction. For me, That was part of its interest and its charm. Whatever you do when you visit it, make sure to see Ninian's Cave, where the great carved stone crosses once stood on the beach over a thousand years ago. And on a clear day, you can still see the Isle of Man and across the Firth to England. Be careful on the cliffs walking from the cave to the Isle of Whithorn. And then, when you've safely arrived, spend some time throwing a stone into the Pilgrim's Prayers by the 12th century chapel that sits on the lonely peninsula. When your pilgrimage is done, there's no place better to sit and go over your memories than the Steam Packet Inn on the Isle of Whithorn. When we were there, a trio of local musicians were playing traditional music as much for themselves, it seemed, as for the pub crowd. Have some tatties and neeps. In the mid-1990s, Andrew Patterson, an early pilgrim, wrote this. A favorite resting place is beside the fire in the bar at the Steam Packet Inn. A wide window opens out on the harbour with plate glass to keep chill winds at bay. These winds rattle through the rigging in a flotilla of sailing boats, taut wire drums against alloy masts. Sturdier and more workmanlike are the hulls of the fishing boats that still work out of this harbour. As the name suggests, Victorian steamers took passengers once from this dockside by the steam packet inn, bound for Liverpool, Dublin and the Isle of Man. Raising a glass with a fresh froth to the brim and dew misting the rim, it is good to toast the golden miles of Galloway. During this time when all of us are traveling quite a bit less, if you'd like to know more about the Whithorn Way, maybe start with the Whithorn Trust's website, which I find uh, highly informative and highly recommend, www.whithorn.com. Whithorn is W-H-I-T-H-O-R-N, www.whithorn.com. There are some lovely drone shot videos on the site, as well as a place where you can order Julia Muir Watts' extremely helpful and informative book titled Walk the Whithorn Way. I very much recommend that book before you begin, unlike us. I hope you do get a chance to walk through Ayrshire, Dumfries, and Galloway. It's a Spartan landscape that sometimes looks barren, but the path is absolutely chock-full of Neolithic, Celtic, Roman, Norman, Saxon, Norse, and Scottish history. The food is warm and delicious, and even if you don't run into somebody like Peter Ross, as we were fortunate enough to do, the people are still friendly. Bring some good rain gear and make sure to book your accommodations ahead, and you will have a wonderful walk. 
When I got back from walking the Whithorn Way, I wrote a blog post titled, 10 Reasons You Should Walk the Whithorn Way Next Time You're Thinking About the Camino. If you'd like some convincing, you can find that post and much more about Whithorn and other trails on my blog site at www.somethinggrand.ca, something grand with two Gs, www.somethinggrand.ca. Make sure while you're at it to check out Ken Wilson's complete and thoughtful blog site at readingandwalking.wordpress.com. I'm Matthew Anderson, the Staircase Pilgrim, and I look forward to seeing your next episode of Pilgrimage Stories from Up and Down the Staircase. Thanks to James Anderson for his harmonica masterwork and to Gabe Morehouse Anderson for helping me out on guitar. My thanks also to Sarah Parks for her reading. I want to express my appreciation to the Concordia University Part-Time Faculty Association, or CUPFA, for funding not only the research but also the voyage, and for their funding of my research and pilgrimage overall. A big thanks to Julia Muir-Watt and the folks at the Whithorn Trust, and especially to Peter Ross, whose lovely Scottish brogue you heard throughout this podcast. I can't walk past and smile. ordnance survey maps. Uh, make sure that you um, book accommodation ahead. Uh, anything else? Any other advice? Practice climbing hills. Yeah. Take rain pants. Okay.